0: Last year at church, we spent an evening together with some of the guys overviewing a sermon preparation process. From start to finish, how might we prepare a message? We thought about studying the passage, outlining a sermon, and then delivering it. But what we're going to do in this session is zoom in on one vital aspect, application. I want to say up front that the principles we're going to talk through are relevant both to longer talks and shorter talks. So whether I'm speaking for 35 minutes or giving a five-minute devotional, I need to apply the passage. And many of these principles relate. I want to begin with a confession. And the confession is that I am no expert when it comes to application. In fact, I find application to be the most difficult part of the preparation process. I've been reflecting a bit on why that's the case. And I want to give you three reasons why application is tricky. The first is that there are few helps when it comes to applying the text. Now, in terms of interpreting a Bible passage, we have lots of helps. Forests have been felled in order to provide us with commentaries. The commentaries will help us with the meaning of the text, the context, the meaning of the Greek, even if we don't speak Greek. And even if one commentary doesn't help us, we can always just find another. But here's the problem. Usually for me, it happens round about Thursday. I've read the commentaries. I've come to some understanding of what I think the text means. And then it dawns on me. I now need to take this meaning and somehow apply it to the people who will be sitting in front of me this Sunday. And that's a daunting prospect. And here's the thing. There is not another stack of books to help me with that. I don't have another stack of books that are going to help me with how to apply the passage to the folk in my church. Even take something like one of these commentaries. This is a book from the NIV Application Commentary Series. A very useful set of commentaries. We've got lots of them in our library. But the goal of these commentaries is specifically to help preachers with the application of their message. Can I be honest and say that I find the least helpful part of these commentaries to be the application sections? Part of it is because they're very culturally focused. So these authors come from all across the world. Many of them are North American authors. They therefore speak into issues of North American culture and North American churches, which is fine, except for the fact that people in my church don't live in North America. I also tend to find that many of the applications already sound dated. Even a commentary written five years ago can be speaking to issues that no longer seem quite as live in the church today. Therefore, there are few helps to assist us when it comes to application. But here's another problem. The second issue with application is that I don't really have a method for application. Or let me rephrase that, I may not have a conscious method. Again, it's somewhat different when we think about understanding the Bible. Most of us have some sort of process of study. We do one thing, and then we do another thing, and then we do another thing. We also have principles of interpretation, like read the Bible in context. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Read the Bible in a Christ centered way. These are examples of principles of interpretation, their method. But on the other hand, if I were to ask you, what's your method of application? I'm guessing that many of us wouldn't be able to give an answer to that. You see, application is somewhat intuitive. We're like the singer songwriter. Who writes songs, but if you ask them, "How did you write the song?" they might not be able to tell you. They would say, "I just did it." Well that's often how it is with application. It's just something we do. Now that said, I am going to argue tonight that while application is somewhat intuitive, we can nonetheless reflect on it a little. The analogy I would use is that of a top sportsman. take. I don't know, Lionel Messi as an example. I've got no doubt at all that Lionel Messi is innately a brilliant football player. He's just instinctively good. Probably long before he was ever coached, he was already a fantastic footballer. But on the other hand, even Lionel Messi can reflect upon his play. I'm sure that coaches have taken him into a video room and shown him footage of his movements and the way that he plays and given him some feedback caused him to reflect upon the way he plays. And I think application is like that. It's always going to be somewhat intuitive, but we can pull it apart a little and think through, here are some of the principles of how we do it. But then there's a third reason I think that application is a challenge, and that is that application is essentially a confrontational act. By that I mean... It's the point in the sermon where we take the word of God and we press it home to the lives of the listeners. Now, the application is confrontational even if we're preaching something comforting, even if we're saying something encouraging. Nonetheless, we're bringing God's word to the hearer and we're saying, this affects your life. This needs to change your life. Application is a confrontational act. Just think of some of the common applications in the Bible. Think about how challenging they are. Worship. Repent. Believe. Obey. Be holy. Love. Serve. Be humble. Forgive. These are not easy things to hear or to do. Stuart Olliot, the preacher, says something like this, that unconverted men and women don't like sermon application, nor do unspiritual believers. You get the point he's making. Not everyone in the pew is ready to hear our message. Sometimes we're preaching to people with their arms crossed and therefore application takes courage. It takes the help of the Holy Spirit. It takes prayer. So these are some of the reasons why application is a challenge. You might then be asking, well, why do it? Why not just stop short of it? Why not just explain the text and be done with it? Well, I want to think through why application is essential. And I want you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. If you're listening to this online, you might want to stop the recording at this point and look at the passage for yourself and answer this question. What has God designed the Bible to do? According to this passage, what has God designed the Bible to do? Well, let's answer that question from this text. I think there's three main things that God has designed the Bible to do. First of all, God has designed the Bible to save. We see that in verse 15. From infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So the Bible is designed by God to give us the wisdom to be saved through faith in Christ. Then secondly, God has designed the Bible not just to save, but to sanctify We see that in verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. In other words, God's word doesn't just save us. It also sanctifies us. It changes us. On the one hand, it teaches true doctrine and it rebukes false doctrine. It also corrects sinful behavior and trains us in righteousness. And then the third thing is there in verse 17. God's word not only saves and sanctifies, but it equips us to serve so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, here's what's interesting. Often when we look at these verses, we tend to focus on what the Bible is. And it's helpful to think about that, isn't it? The Bible is God's word. It is God's breathed out his expired word. The Bible is the holy scriptures. These things are true. But what we tend to miss when we look at these verses is Paul's emphasis on what the Bible does. He's not just talking about what the Bible is, but what it does and what does it do. It saves, it sanctifies, and it equips people such as Timothy for service. And so we mustn't get the wrong idea about application. It's not that the Bible is a book that we need to now take and apply and sort of work out if there is an application of the Bible. No, Paul is saying the Bible is itself applied theology. The very purpose for the Bible is to save us and sanctify us and equip us for service. Or to put it another way, If we do not apply the Bible, we are going against the very purpose of the Bible. So when we come to any Bible text, we could be asking these questions, couldn't we? What does this passage teach us about the way to be saved? What wisdom does it give about the way of salvation through Christ? Then also, how does this passage sanctify me? How does it correct and train and rebuke and teach We could also be asking the question, how does this passage equip us for every good work? But of course, it's not just that the whole Bible has these overall purposes. It's also that each book of the Bible also has a purpose. This is something that we could do as a group exercise. We could work our way through the books of the Bible and write up a brief summary of the purpose for each book. Take the Gospels as an example. We have four Gospels that tell us of the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But they're not just four Gospels that speak about Jesus, are they? When you examine the four Gospels in depth, you see that each of the authors has a particular purpose in writing his Gospel. Matthew, for example, is writing to show the fulfillment of Old Testament promises in the Lord Jesus. John, on the other hand, is writing that we might come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, through the signs that he performed, and so on we could go. So it's helpful to realise that not only does the Bible have great purposes of application, but also each book of the Bible has its own application purpose. Now, at this point, I want then to move on to start thinking about how we should apply The Bible. I hope I've convinced you that application is essential. But now we're going to think through how do we actually do it. For those who are listening to this recording online, uh, what we did in our group session at this point was we watched a video together. The particular video we watched was a video of John T. Alcock speaking at the EMA a couple of years ago. If you want to Google and look it up, it's Luke chapter 5. John T. Alcock speaking. You'll find it's on Clayton TV. And we watched about the first 13 or 14 minutes of that talk. It'd be helpful for you even to pause this recording, to watch that video. John T is looking at Luke chapter 5, the Fisher of Men passage. And as you watch that video, I want you to reflect on the way that John T. is already beginning to apply the message in the very introduction of the sermon. Watch it, reflect on it. What is he doing that is helpful? There's quite a lot that could be said about the way Jonti approached the sermon there. But just two really quick things, and we'll touch on these a little bit towards the end as well. The first is that Jonti front loads the application. So he spends most of the first 10 minutes talking about the relevance of the text to the hearer. Actually, if you go on in the sermon, he then gets into the text a lot more and explains parts of the text. But he begins the sermon with why this is relevant, particularly to a group full of ministers and preachers. The other thing I think that's really helpful in this intro is the vulnerability and honesty of Jaunty. So Jaunty is very open about his own frustrations and discouragement in evangelism, and that immediately makes this sermon feel grounded and real. So we'll come back to some of these things, but that's a good example, I think, the sort of thing we're going to be thinking about tonight. How do we make the entire sermon relevant to those who are sitting in front of us? In a few minutes, we're going to think about some principles of application, and then I'm going to give some practical suggestions. But just before we do that, let me talk about two types of sermons I have preached One I'm going to call the explanation-focused sermon and the other I'm going to call the application-focused sermon. First of all, the explanation-focused sermon. Now, in this sermon, I spend the first five minutes introducing the passage. I don't give any thought in the introduction to the people in the pew. I don't speak about the relevance of this text or why it might matter to listen I just immediately and for the 1st five, ten minutes talk about the context of the passage and the background to it. I then move into the long explanation part, which is the, the big chunk in the middle of the sermon. Maybe that's 20 minutes or so where I've got a number of points. And I work through these points and I describe what's in the text. I explain what's in the text. I illustrate what's in the text. Whatever I find interesting in the passage, I just talk about that. But here's something for sure. In this kind of sermon, I definitely don't start applying the passage at this point. No, no, no. I stick to just describing and explaining what's in the passage. Then I get to the last five minutes of the sermon. And this is the part where I squeeze in the application. It's usually just a couple of quick points because I don't have a lot of time left. Now, in the final few minutes, I give a couple of reasons why this sermon might be significant to your life. Now, I'm slightly caricaturing, but I have preached a lot of sermons like that. That basically take around 25 minutes before I even start to address the listener. Let me contrast that with what we might call an application-focused sermon. This time, in the first five minutes, I introduce the passage, but I do so to the people who are sitting in front of me. I am conscious of the congregation. And at some point in the first five, ten minutes of the sermon, I begin to address why this passage matters to them. Brian Chapel, in his book Christ-Centered Preaching, helpfully talks about the fallen condition focus of each text basically what he's talking about there is the fact that we all live post the fall and due to the fall we both sin and we struggle we both sin in various ways and on the other hand we find ourselves in difficult situations of struggle and suffering and chapel suggests and i think this is probably true that every text in the bible has some aspect of our fallenness in it Either it's addressing a sin in our life and redeeming that sin, or it's talking about a struggle. Maybe something like persecution, going through trials, a sin or a struggle. And Chapel's point is that somewhere very early on in the sermon, we at least need to have hinted at what aspect of our fallenness this passage is going to redeem. So I begin the sermon in this application-focused model with why listen. Then I move into the explanation part, but there's a difference here because in this explanation part, I am application conscious. So I share what's most important in the passage as it relates to the application of the passage. I also speak about things that are going to be helpful for the listeners, I perhaps raise questions that they might be asking of the text and I answer them. Also, and this is very much in contrast to the previous approach, I may already start to apply in this explanation section. Dan Doriani in his brilliant book on application talks about a permeable boundary between explanation and application I think many of the best preachers tend to flip between explanation and application and back to explanation and back to application, and sometimes you almost can't tell where you are because they're just seamlessly moving between the two. There's a a permeable boundary, if you like, between explaining the text and showing its relevance. And then in this application-focused model of preaching, we then come to the conclusion And the thing about this is, in this kind of sermon, the conclusion isn't where we first of all introduce application. Because the whole sermon has been pushing towards application from the very beginning. In this kind of sermon, we're simply summing up the application. It's a summing up and a pressing home, a demanding of a response from the listener. Now, in many ways, these two kinds of sermon, model one and model two, they're not massively different. They're both faithful to the biblical text. They're both going to be helpful to some extent, but I think there is a tonal difference between one and two. I think with the explanation focused model, the preacher is very focused on the text and it's good to be focused on the text. But I think in the second model, the preacher is focused both on the text and on the hearer. They're doing what John Stock calls dual listening. And therefore, I think the preaching is not only faithful, as it is in Sermon 1, but it's more helpful. It's more applied to the people who are there. I want to now walk through five principles that I think are important in application. And there's some principles I'm leaving out. We don't have time to cover all the important things that could be said. But here's five of the most important. So first of all, the better the interpretation, the better the application. Or let me put it as David Jackman does. Good application is the fruit of good interpretation. So We're not saying tonight that studying the passage isn't important. Actually, if we don't study hard, we will not apply well. I mean, to start with, if we don't interpret the passage accurately, the application can't be accurate. If we get the wrong message out of the text, we will apply the wrong message to the people. Now, by the grace of God... It is possible to preach a right message from a wrong text. And we've all probably done that. We've certainly all heard that done. I listened to a a sermon last year on holiday. It was on a parable. And I have to say, I totally disagreed with the preacher's interpretation of the parable. But apart from that, almost everything else he said in the sermon was actually biblical in a wider sense. And he quoted from all sorts of other parts of the Bible and he taught on a very helpful subject. It's just that it didn't, in my view, come from that text. So if we're to preach the passage in front of us and apply the passage in front of us, we need to try and be accurate. So I can't take something like Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door. I cannot take a text like that And then see the primary application as being towards non-Christians. Many people have preached the text that way. But of course, in the context, Jesus is speaking to a church. A church full of lukewarm, proud believers who are shutting Jesus out in various ways. It's the wrong application if the focus of my sermon is speaking to non-Christians. So we need to get the interpretation as accurate as possible. And we also need to get it as specific as possible. If our interpretation is not specific, then our application will be general and dull. I take a, a, a practical example. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. Paul's writing to Timothy and he says this. For this reason... I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, here's what we might do with that verse. It's very easy to do what I would call a springboard application. So, a springboard application is where we see a few words in the text. We don't really work hard to understand them in context, we just springboard off of them. And then we just start to talk about those themes. So, for instance, here, we read this verse and we see things like the gift of God. And we think, oh, that's about spiritual gifts. I know some things about spiritual gifts. We then see Paul saying to Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. And so we springboard off of this verse. And we just start talking about using our spiritual gifts generally and fanning them into flame if they're at a low ebb, and we just apply it in a general way to people in the church. The problem is that these verses were not written to all Christians. When we look at this this passage carefully, it's written to Timothy. Timothy has been set apart as a Christian leader through the laying on of Paul's hands. Timothy has been given responsibility to guard and to preach And to teach the gospel. Timothy is also feeling discouraged at this point. He's feeling fearful or perhaps he's feeling tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. Because Paul is in prison and other quote-unquote Christian leaders are defecting from the gospel to preach other things. So Paul is writing to a flagging Christian leader who is in danger of dropping out of the race and it's in that context that Paul says to Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God that was given to you. Now, when we get that interpretation really specific, the application then becomes more specific. So rather than just applying that verse to Christians in general and their spiritual gifts, we may apply it to Christian leaders particularly. We might say to those who have been in leadership for quite a number of years and you're feeling a bit discouraged, keep on going. Don't let your gifts fall out of use. Keep preaching. Keep being faithful to the gospel. Don't give up now. Or we might give an encouragement to the congregation. Pray for those in leadership in the church. It's not an easy job. There's lots of discouragements. Pray that they will be faithful, that they will keep using the gift that God has given them to preach his word. Now, of course, in a secondary sense, we could then say that actually there's a wider principle here for all Christians. We can all be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. But if we don't get the interpretation specific, then we miss what could be a very interesting and pointed application. So that's the first principle. The better the interpretation, the better the application. Here's the second thing. Apply to the whole person. Apply to the whole person. Back to 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. Notice there that the four things Paul says Scripture is useful for divide into two categories. Belief and behavior. Or doctrine and duty. So Paul talks about teaching and rebuking. That's teaching truth about God and correcting false doctrine. So one of the things that scripture is useful for, and we often don't think of teaching as being useful, but Paul does. Paul sees teaching as being a big part of application. That having the right doctrine leads to a certain kind of behavior and holding wrong doctrines has practical consequences. But of course, Paul doesn't just speak about our beliefs. We're not just a set of beliefs, are we? He also goes on to talk about our behaviour. Therefore, God's word is to be used to correct sinful behaviour and it's to be used to train us in righteousness. In other words, Paul is saying to Timothy that God's word is to be used to speak to the whole person. Another way of putting this is that we are a combination as human beings of beliefs and desires and actions. We believe certain things, we desire certain things, and we do certain things. And there's a danger in our preaching that we just focus on one or other of those. Uh, So perhaps, you know, we're always emphasizing beliefs, but we ignore the fact that actually people often believe certain things, but behave in a different way because of their desires. Because they don't want to follow God's word. They don't want to take the hard path of obedience. They've got a desire that's driving that. Or, perhaps in our preaching, we're very focused on the doing, the behavioral aspect. And we neglect to apply the Bible to people's thinking or their desires. So, in our application, let's speak to the whole person. Thirdly, we need to apply God's word to a wide range of people and issues. One of the helpful things here is the application grids that you can find online that Mark Dever has put together. Look that up online if you've not seen that before. Mark Dever, application grid. He has this process every week. Once he has prepared his basic outline of the message, he goes through each of his points and he thinks, how does this apply to different sorts of people and different sorts of categories? For instance, how does this passage speak to the non-Christian? How does it speak to the individual Christian? On the other hand, how does this passage speak to the whole church? What would our church look like if this passage had an impact? He also looks at things like, how does this passage apply to culture and wider society? What does it say about our world? What does it say about our relationships? Such a big part of our life. What does it say about marriage and family? Singleness. What does it say about our working life? And so he does this sort of meditation, thinking through how God's word applies to different people and different issues. I find for myself that sometimes when I get to that point, I think about specific people in the congregation in different situations. And that's a helpful way of imaginatively thinking through how might this text apply to them. I think one of the big things we need to avoid is simply preaching the passage to ourselves. Now, I know it's a good thing to preach the passage to ourselves, but I mean this in a different way. We can easily assume that the people in the pew are just like me. So if I'm married and I have children, I'm going to have a tendency to make a lot of my applications about married life and children. And it's not wrong to apply into those areas, But I maybe need to bear in mind that 40%, 50% maybe of my congregation are actually single. Make sure that you're applying to the whole church. I think that's true also in something like age demographic. For example, when you single out a group, a sort of demographic within your church, make sure it's not just only one kind of group. There's a danger, for instance, of singling out the young people. Maybe we make lots of applications towards our young people. But actually, people in their twenties need application. People in their fifties need application. People who are in their eighties need application. So let's just be careful that we're not just discriminating in that, but we're trying to address the whole people who are in front of us. Fourthly, know the difference between a clear principle and a suggested practice. Dan Doriani in his book on application makes a very helpful distinction between what he calls a specific rule and an ideal. When he talks about a specific rule, he means something where the Bible is spelling out exactly how to do something, where it gives us the how. So an example of this would be like Matthew 18. If someone sins against you, you have to go to the person You have to confront them with that. If they won't listen to you, you have to take one or two others with you. And if they won't listen to the one or two others, then you have to take it to the church. Now, that is a very prescriptive and a very clear set of steps. But Doriani makes the point that many applications in the Bible are not as clear and laid out as that. So, for instance, love one another. Doriani would say is an ideal. Yes, it's clear that we have to love other believers, but how exactly are we to love them? There's not a series of steps being laid out there. Or a text like, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Again, we're not told in detail how we should do that. It's an ideal. Be holy as I am holy. Again, it's an ideal. Honour your parents. Great. But how does that work out at various ages and stages of life? The text doesn't address that. And so in these cases where where Scripture is speaking in terms of ideals, we need wisdom in working through how these things might be applied. And we also need to be a little careful when we're being more prescriptive than the Bible To give an example of that, supposing we're in Psalm 119, which is speaking about having a love for the law of the Lord and meditating on God's word frequently. Well, we could take an ideal like that and start to press home very strongly a suggested outworking of that. So we might say in preaching, we all need to get up at seven in the morning and do our quiet time for half an hour. And at the end of the day, we need to read our Bible as well, at least twice a day. Well, we need to recognize there that we're being more prescriptive than the text. The ideal is that we love God's word, that we meditate on it frequently, but actually how we work that out is not spelled out in the Bible. I think it's helpful sometimes to to move into suggestions of how we might do something, but just bear in mind that that's what you're doing. I think this is going to be very relevant, incidentally, in the one another series that we're doing where every week there's an ideal. Confess your sins to one another. Okay, great. In what context? How exactly do we do that? What does that look like? The preachers are going to need wisdom. They're going to need to suggest things, but they're also going to need to be careful not to be overly prescriptive. And then fifthly, fifth principle is to preach against your natural tendency. Some of us are more naturally scolders and some of us are more naturally comforters. Some of us are the sort of preacher that whatever text we're on, we're into giving a big challenge. Because you know, that's the kind of preacher we are. We're convictional, we're confrontational. The trouble is that not every passage in the Bible is like that. And the danger is that we can be on a really comforting and encouraging text. Maybe it's a text about assurance, trying to encourage Christians to feel assured in their faith. But because of our style, we actually make that into a big challenge. On the other hand, we might have a very comforting style of preaching. But the problem with that is, not every passage in the Bible is designed to comfort. Some passages are designed to warn us. It's very easy sometimes, if you're of a comforting persuasion, to soften biblical texts, to apologize for them, to try and make them less of a challenge than they are. But actually, there's a danger there that we're blunting the purpose of that text. So what I'm suggesting here is that if the text is tough, be tough. If the text is soft, be soft. If the text is joyful, be joyful. Even if that's not your natural MO. Go against your natural tendency. Let the text push you in terms of the way that you preach. Finally, I want to move on to some quick-fire suggestions, and I'm going to be very quick with these. These are not laws, these are just suggestions of things that I think can be practically helpful. So first, consider putting application into your sermon headings. This is not always possible, but often it is. In a recent sermon on Job, I had this as my first point. God has more than one reason to allow our suffering. Now, I could have written that heading like this. God had more than one reason to allow Job's suffering. But I thought that was less helpful and less impactful. Now, you can't always do that, but it can be good to begin to apply even in our outline. The next thing is front load the application. Show early on why the sermon matters. We talked a bit about that earlier. Someone like Martin Lloyd-Jones was a great example of that. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a very explanation-heavy preacher in some ways, but he always began his sermon with, this is the reason why you must listen. And if you listen to a lot of Lloyd-Jones sermons, it's, it's quite amusing actually, because every week he's always saying, this is the most important message. This is the message that the church most needs to hear today. And then the next week he says the same thing because he's gripped by the text and he wants to show the congregation early on why this text matters and why they should listen. The next thing is, consider minor apps. Consider minor applications. Application can sometimes just be a line. When I was uh, preaching on Job recently, There was a point where I was talking about the friends coming to visit Job and how they sat with him for seven days in silence. Now, I don't think it would have been right to preach a sermon on the friends and to make the main point of that sermon, Job's friends did a great job of pastoral care. Clearly, the moment they start speaking, they're terrible examples of pastoral care. But I think it was fair game to make as a minor application that there was something helpful, at least in that part of what they did. That they moved towards Job, not away from him, in his suffering. That they sat with him, they empathised with him in silence for that period of time. It was just a paragraph in the sermon. It's what I would call a minor application. I think we can put those in throughout the sermon and sometimes just be making little brief points for people to go away and think about. Another quickfire thing is that questions are very powerful. I'm not going to say much about this, except that questions cause people to examine their own lives. Do you trust God in days of darkness, or do you only trust him in the light? You see how a question like that takes the text and begins to push it towards the person in the pew. It it forces them to examine themselves and think, well, what is my response to this passage? Another suggestion is that illustrations can be the application. Illustrations can be the application. You can share a story that gives an example of the text in action. One of the most famous contemporary illustrations is that of John Piper, his famous seashell sermon. You know the one where he he talks about a couple who retired and they moved to Florida and they buy a yacht, and they spend their retirement collecting shells. He then tells another story about two women in his church who have spent a lifetime sharing the gospel as missionaries. These two ladies died in a car accident. And Piper then imagines the contrast between these two couples, if you like, as they stand before the Lord. The couple with the yacht holding up to God their collection of seashells and saying, Lord, this is what I have to show for my life. I collected shells. On the other hand, you have these two single women who have a lifetime of service and sacrifice to bring to the Lord and for him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, there's almost nothing that needs to be said in the back of that. The illustration itself is so self-evident in terms of how it applies. The second last thing I want to say here is leave your notes. Leave your notes. Now, I remember when I went to Charlotte Chapel in Edinburgh, Peter Granger used to sit and listen to his preaching every week. And one of the things that he used to say was that application is that moment when you eyeball the congregation And I've never forgotten that. I do think that application is the point in the sermon where we should try and leave our notes as much as possible. If I don't have a lot of time to read through my sermon, the two bits I will always spend time focusing on is the introduction and the application sections, including the conclusion. I want to know those parts as well as possible because when I get to those sections, I don't want to have my head in my notes. I want to be speaking to the people in front of me, making good eye contact. I'm not saying that we learn it verbatim. The Holy Spirit can also guide us in the moment, of course. But I am saying that I think in those moments, we need to be thoroughly thought through and ready to leave our notes. And then my final quickfire suggestion is to read people who apply well. I think application is something that is caught as well as taught. So read people who are good at it. J.C. Ryle is an absolute master. Read Ryle. Matthew Henry. I love Matthew Henry's commentary. He is fantastic at application. And you always know when he's doing it because he, he will always write the word note. <laughs> That's always his preface to an application. It's usually just a one-liner He'll explain the text, and then he'll say, note, and then he will make a really incisive point of application, an inference from the text. Charles Spurgeon, some of the modern preachers who I think are very good at this, Don Carson, read his book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. It's actually a book of sermons on prayer, and there are some very helpful examples there of application. Guys, there's so much more that could be said here. I've barely even touched on preaching in a Christ-centered way. How do we apply the Old Testament? That's a very tricky issue. Maybe we need to spend a whole evening on that. But I hope what we've covered tonight is helpful. I hope it's begun a conversation among us about how we can apply the Bible more effectively. Let's continue to have that conversation. Let's now pray as we finish. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is saving, that it is living, that it is active. Father, we thank you that the double-edged sword has been at work in our lives. Father, we pray that you will help us to wield it wisely so that we apply it well to our lives and to the lives of others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.